morning. I'm just going to pray before I start. Heavenly Father, I just give you what I'm bringing this morning. May my words fall away and may your words find the place in people's hearts. Lord, I pray that every heart would be open to what you have for each person here or watching online this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I am carrying on this teaching series, uh, This is Jesus, and James preached last week, and he's a hard act to follow. Um, Sadly for you, there will be no Justin Bieber quotes, or Latin, um, (laughs) this morning. I'm I'm afraid I know little of either, um, but I do know Jesus, so that's... that's Um, So this morning's reading is very precious to me, Um, so I was really happy when I was given this to preach on. Uh, The Bible reading plays a part in my own story of faith, and uh, when I was growing up, uh, we would on occasion head down to the little Methodist chapel in the village of Llanclaudy in Herefordshire, Um, and this chapel was led by Faye and Les Rowlands, and they were farmers in the area, but they also faithfully dedicated their lives to sharing Jesus with the children of the local area, and I feel like I owe a lot to them. Um, We would go to youth club in the week and um, play darts, that was fun, ping pong, board games, and there was a tuck shop with half penny sweets. So Tempe went a long way on the sweet front. Um, And also every week there would be a teaching from the Bible And they encouraged us to do stuff with Scripture Union. Um, And one year, I had to learn part of this reading. um, And I retold the story word for word from memory, stumbling only on the word alabaster. And I came first, woohoo, winning my first Bible, the good news version of the Bible, complete with simple illustrations. It was very precious to me. And... um, And so I tucked away that story and all that we learned from Faye and Les about Jesus. And those scriptural seeds sort of stayed silently waiting for a time in the future when they would be remembered. And this story in Luke is similar to stories in Matthew, Mark, and John. And sometimes we can amalgamate all those anointing stories together because they feel feel like they're the same story. But... However, Luke's anointing story is different enough to make people believe that it's a completely different story. Um, The similar stories in the other gospel all happen in Passion Week in Bethany, um, the week before Jesus' crucifixion and burial. However, Luke's gospel, um, in Luke's gospel, this anointing story happens earlier in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And the stories in the other three gospels are about the anointing of a king oil is poured on Jesus' head, and, um, or the, the anointing uh, prior to his burial. Um, however, Luke's story comes right after Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And it was those passages that uh, earned Jesus the title of friend of sinners. And Luke's anointing account seemed to have a different focus. It's a story of him actually being a friend of a sinner, and it seems to be more of a healing story. So unlike the other healing stories in the gospel, where a crippled body or a blind eyes or 
deaf ears are healed. This is a story not, not of the healing of a body, but the deep inner healing of a broken person by an encounter with Jesus. She was wounded by circumstances, maybe some wrong choices. Who knows how this woman got this very public label of a woman who lived a sinful life, this sinful woman. It doesn't matter how she got the label. What matters was that was her identity. That was her label. That was how the community saw her. It was a humiliating and long-term public disgrace. That was who she was to them and probably who she thought she was herself. She'd absorbed that identity from everything that was whispered about her. But this story is the gospel. This story is the story of what salvation looks like for a person. Restoration of relationship with God. Restoration of social standing. Restoration of self-worth and dignity. Her human condition was changed. Her identity was changed. She was not who they said she was anymore after this encounter with Jesus. This is the story of who Jesus is to the broken, to those whose circumstances, whose own choices or lack of choices very often landed them there in a public and private shame. And shame can be crippling. And part of salvation is a release from shame, the shame of who we've been, the choices we've made, the things that have been done to us when those choices have been taken away by circumstances or by other people. And thankfully, we don't have to be defined by the worst things we've done or the worst things that have been done to us. We're defined by Jesus and what he says about us and what he says to us and what he has to say is lovely. It's bathed in love. We no longer have to be who they say we are. He changes us. And this is why I love this story so much. I'm so grateful to this woman for her bravery, her vulnerability, because her testimony gives us this beautiful, beautiful insight to the heart of God for the least, the lost, the lonely, the broken, the disgraced, the shamed, and those, as James said last week, the difficult ones to love. Um, some of you may know my story, others may not. Um, I was a heroin addict from the age of 17 until I was 22, living that life for five years, and they were five horrible, horrible years. Uh, the choices I made, the things that happened to me in that time, um, left me very broken and filled with a lot of shame. And there was no human way back from that. It was too much. The voices in my head were very loud. Um, you did that, you're disgusting. You'll never amount to anything. You're worthless. It was over and over again. It was like, if you've seen The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, you know, Gollum has that like narrative going on. That was like what it was like for me. I was filled with this deep um, self-loathing. But then I was miraculously set free from my addiction and I knew that a miracle had happened, so that led me to try and find out who had helped me. And it was on that journey that I remembered this passage um, and realized it could only have been Jesus because he was so, so lovely to that woman. 
and all other spiritual answers that I found at that time of searching required attaining a certain level of holiness because um, before I could access anything. But I'd been helped and met in my worst possible human state. Um, and this journey of discovery took me to London and back into relationship with my sister Hannah. And she and her friends went to HTB Church, his big church in London, the birthplace of Alpha. And it wasn't very long until I ended up on an Alpha course. Um, they obviously push it quite hard there. <laughs> no, they don't. No, they don't. It's just very, you know, you just hear about it everywhere. And, uh, and I went along to the first week and I felt very out of place. Um, one of my biggest struggles has always been this sense of being weird and not fitting in. Um, I'm kind of embracing my weird now, and I'm okay with it, and I've found my place, so that's good. Um, but back then, even though the people on this Alpha course were lovely, I didn't feel like I fitted in. So when the weekend after that first week of Alpha, someone I knew called me and asked me if I wanted to go to a party. Um, they had some drugs, and I went because I thought, yes, this is, this is where I fit in. This is where people accept me. And I ended up taking drugs that night, and I had this revelation that the drugs were a sort of fake fitting in. I was having to take them to fit in, but Jesus was real. So the next day, I went back to church feeling really guilty, and I said to God, I know you've given me my life back, um, I, but I felt like I'd thrown it all back in his face. And I said, please, can I just have some friends that will accept me and love me for who I am? And then I went off to the pub um, near the church. And when I was in there, I looked up and I saw my alpha group leader um, coming towards me. And she said, Emily, how are you? And she remembered my name. And it was a really big deal for me that she remembered my name. And I'm terrible with remembering names. And so please forgive me if I have ever wounded you by forgetting your name. It, um, because I know it's so important to remember people's names. And so she said my name, and I burst into tears and said, I'm not doing very well. I have just been to a party. I've taken drugs again. I'll never be good enough to be a Christian because I can't stop sinning. And then she said to me, you don't have to be good enough. Jesus will meet you where you are. And I can remember the relief um, that I felt that I didn't need to earn his love by being good enough, that he'd meet me and help me to change and then she introduced me to some of her friends, and I was invited to a party. It was a Christian party, the first Christian party that I've ever been to. And I was like, well, what's it going to be like? Uh, Bible and some nibbles. But it wasn't. It was like, it was really fun. And they were normal people and not weird in any way. Um, but they, um, they, they accepted me, uh, my weird quirkiness. They accepted me. They welcomed me in. They made friends with me. And... As I was leaving, one of the girls said, I live one stop away from you on the tube. Um, and she said, let's, let's, let's go home together. And so I got on the tube and she told me about her Jesus on the way home. And I had never, I didn't know um, that you could know Jesus like that. And I remember getting off the train and running to the house where I was staying and getting on my knees and asking Jesus, into my life, and it was a defining moment for me. Um, I felt peace for the first time in such a long time. Um, it, would, it was like I'd been holding my breath, and suddenly I could ex exhale. And now that girl, Natalie, 
uh, actually still one of my best friends, 21 years later. Um, she became a real friend to me in that time. Um, in those early days, she prayed with me heaps. Uh, she got me reading the Bible. She discipled me well. Um, we would sing worship songs at the top of our voice while driving around the North Circular with our windows wide open, praying for every person we met or passed as we drove. And I remember heading back to my auntie and uncle's house. That's where I was living at the time. And it was not long after I'd come to faith. And my uncle said to me, have, have you fallen in love? <laughs> and I was like, why? <laughs> and he was like, because you're glowing. And, and this transformation that happened, this inner healing of knowing that I was forgiven and loved, free from shame, finally. And it was visible on the outside. And everybody needs to know that they're loved. And I've been difficult to love. And it's a horrible feeling, that feeling deep inside that you're unlovable. And so many people feel unlovable. But we have this good news about who God actually is, and we have this beautiful story to help us. And so going back to the story, there are three main characters, Simon the Pharisee, the unnamed woman, and of course, Jesus, God incarnate, fully God, fully human, Jesus right there in this story. This real historical moment centered around Jesus and his interactions with these two people. And the story starts with Simon, the Pharisee. And Pharisees get a bit of a, a bad rap, don't they? You know, we, we kind of think, oh yes, hypocritical bunch. Um, but essentially, they were really trying to get it right. They were Torah observant, following the Jewish law to the letter. And they did it because they wanted to, to love God and love neighbor. And they're genu genuinely looking for God and trying to work out how to live in the world that they found themselves in. They wanted to please God. But many of them just didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. Their perception of God was so wrong that they couldn't see God in the person of Jesus. And now this Pharisee, Simon, had invited Jesus to his house and it was an honor and shame culture. And he should have shown Jesus hospitality and honor due to a guest. But three cultural expectations were ignored. He didn't wash this guest's feet. He didn't kiss this guest's head. He didn't anoint this guest's head with oil. And so he dishonored his guest. And it's so sad because the Pharisees were all waiting for the one who'd been foretold in the writings of the prophets, and he was right there. God himself was right there reclining at Simon's table, and his feet were still dirty. And I had to ask the question, why did Simon not want to honor Jesus? Was it that honoring Jesus in this way could have been seen as Simon nailing his colors to a mast, sympathizing with Jesus and his teachings? What would the other Pharisees say if he'd shown honor to Jesus at that moment? Was it because he was worried about what others would think? Whatever it was, this was a loud statement said quietly. And as I read through that, it, it was sobering. I had to search my own heart and ask Jesus, well, what, what parts of my life do I not honor you, Lord? It's a good question. We can think we're doing everything right. The Pharisees did, but 
like Simon, we can miss Jesus when he's right there in a situation because our preconceived ideas of how things should be. And so the rest of the story, what happens next is an interruption. This woman, this sinful woman, comes into the midst of this place full of important people discussing important things. And there she is. She's heard about Jesus and that he would be there. She came prepared her expensive jar of perfume. We don't know what led her to have her title of sinful woman. And we can wonder, and many people speculate over the years what that meant, but it doesn't matter what she'd done to earn this title. It was what she did next and what Jesus said that mattered. And I love that Luke left this woman unnamed. I believe her dignity is protected in this story by remaining unnamed, identifiable to those who would rather judge her as the woman who'd lived a sinful life. And so now Simon, on seeing his dinner party descending into an embarrassing disarray with this woman known to the town um, for her sinful life, now weeping at Jesus' feet, wetting his feet with her tears, wiping it with her hair. I mean, oh, the shame of that. No good woman lets her hair down in that culture. Kissing his feet, then pouring perfume over them. Suddenly, that smell of dust and food and warm bodies is replaced by a beautiful aroma. Were there quizzical glances between the other guests, murmurings, tutting even? But Simon isn't talking to anyone but himself. His internal dialogue, judging both Jesus and the woman. If he were a prophet, he would know what kind of person she was. But Jesus wasn't just a prophet, he was God incarnate. And Pharisees were responsible for teaching God's law and love to people, but for Simon, his reading of the law meant he feared that his hard-earned holiness could be taken away by touching something unclean, this fear of contamination. But Jesus was not afraid of anyone's touch. He knew she would be healed by a touch from him, her humanity restored to her. Jesus did know her, and he knew Simon. And he said, Simon, I have something to tell you. At that point, did all other conversations stop? Were those words heard by all the people that were there? And as Simon answered Jesus, tell me, teacher, was he teachable in that moment? Jesus used a parable with two people in it. Did Simon see himself as the debtor who owed less? Did he see the woman as the one who owed more? Did he see himself as a debtor at all? Did it slowly dawn on him that Jesus was showing him in this parable that neither debtor could pay, whether one sinned a little or a lot, and that both needed to be forgiven their debt by the creditor? Did he realize that God was the creditor? Did he realize at that point that all he'd been doing to try to be holy would not pay the debt, that he couldn't save himself? But this woman had realized her need for help and come to receive it. It was there for both of them, but only she realized she needed it. And Jesus pointed out to him that he had not loved even a little because he didn't recognize his need for forgiveness, that he had not known that, that it was God who was his guest that evening. 
And he, there he held up Simon's lack of love against the backdrop of this woman's extravagant love. You didn't give me water to wash my feet, but she washed them with her tears. You didn't kiss my head, but she's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's poured perfume on my feet. We don't know how Simon reacts. We're welcomed into the ambiguity of this story. We're left wondering, were his eyes open to his need for a savior? But her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. She has shown great love. And this wasn't an act of, um, of works to earn salvation. It wasn't that she loved enough to be saved. But her love overflowed from her in worship as she was forgiven. Because she was forgiven much, where sin once had its place, now worship was welling up from the very depths of her healed heart because she'd been humble enough to know she needed him, that she needed a savior. And she'd let his healing holiness into those broken, shame-filled places. The shame had gone now. His perfect healing love drove it out, along with all the fear. Your faith has saved you, go in peace. What does it mean for her? Jesus hasn't died yet, yet he forgave her. This story looks a lot like the healing stories. Her faith has saved her. Forgiveness is her healing. Jesus knows who she is and addresses that deepest need, her need for forgiveness. And this is how Jesus is a friend of sinners. He meets us where we are and addresses our need to be forgiven. And that brings healing to the deepest part of our lives. And she could truly go in peace. Peace of someone whose own broken life and identity that had haunted them for so long was now restored. It was his love first that poured into her because she had known her deep, deep need for him because of her deep, deep brokenness. She was full of overflowing with now from the very depth depths of her being. We love because he loves us first. And how did the people at that meal respond? Did they accept her back into community? Did they recognize Jesus was able to forgive sins? Or did they carry on their cancel culture? And what about the woman? Did her life change? This is a dramatic moment of encounter for her. Her sins were forgiven by God right there and then. She, unlike Simon, recognized Jesus as one who could forgive sins and went to him in her need. And how about years later? Did she need her friends to remind her of who she was now? Especially when things happened to remind her of, the, of who she once was? It's so easy to begin to believe those lies again, like the voice of Simon's judging and not the beautiful voice of Jesus who loves us. Did she need her friends to pray for her, to help her remember? I definitely need encouragement from friends and plenty of prayer to help me keep remembering about the, the truth about my transformed life. 
Maybe for some of us, we're trying to earn our own forgiveness, like Simon, to try to be holy by doing all the things we should do. Maybe we need to be more like the woman coming to Jesus and have him impart his righteousness to us to allow him to make us whole and heal us. And the Bible does say that grace is not there so we can keep on sinning. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we're being saved, as James said last week, but it's hard and some things are difficult. Addiction is difficult, I know that well. Um, I may not be addicted to heroin now, but I still have an addictive personality. And sometimes it can feel like coming to Jesus again and again, repeating the same things over and over, and that inner voice can tell us, there's no point in even trying because you're going to do the same thing tomorrow. It can feel relentless. But the thing about God is he knows the why of why we do the things that we sometimes don't even understand ourselves. He knows our backstory, the sources of our pain, like he knows the hair on our head. And it isn't that grace abounds so we can sin more. It is because Jesus is so lovely, a friend of sinners, that he would leave the 99 for you. And he would do it again. He isn't like Simon, who may be the voice in your head saying, if Jesus knew what you were really like, then he wouldn't let you near him. Jesus knows exactly who we are. And he wants to make us whole with his touch. But sometimes we're not instantly healed or set free. Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh. This seems to stay with him, but it keeps him reliant on God. And sometimes our areas of weakness do just that. They keep us close to God because we know we can't do it without him. And so this morning, we're going to come around the communion table. And we get to journey through the liturgy and see those words as a journey. I love the liturgy of the communion because it's, it's a journey that takes us through a time of repentance and absolution and right to the encounter with Jesus in the bread and wine. And, and this morning, after that time of having communion, there'll be people at either side, so you can come up to communion and, um, and uh, receive some prayer. And why don't you let someone speak Jesus' words of life and encouragement over you today? Jesus wants you to know you're utterly loved in the midst of that very real struggle. And he wants you to know the peace, the peace you get when shame stops and when the voice in your head finally stops accusing you. The peace of knowing who Jesus is, a friend of sinners, and who you are, forgiven, and a beloved child of God. <laughs>